Hello everyone, just before we begin today's episode, I want to take the time to recommend another history podcast that you may find interesting. Ancient History Hound has been a friend of the show and presents an excellent series looking at different aspects of Roman and Greek history. If you haven't yet checked it out, I would highly recommend heading to where you get your podcasts from and giving Ancient History Hound a listen. Though, here is Neil to tell you more about the show. Hi, my name's Neil and I'm the host and creator of the Ancient History Hound podcast. Yeah, I know, another person asking you to listen to their podcast. So why should you give mine a go? Well, I cover a variety of topics from across the ancient Mediterranean involving the peoples of Greece, Rome and even eastwards into Mesopotamia. There's lots of variety and the episodes are accessible for all levels of knowledge. As someone who studied ancient history at postgrad level, the episodes are well researched and above all else fun. I love the subject and I love talking about it. The Ancient History Helm podcast is on most platforms. As you'll hear, I'm all about ancient history and it would be epic if you could join me. The islanders of Thassos, after they had been blockaded by Histiaeus of Miletus, had determined to apply their ample resources to building warships and stronger fortifications. The island's revenue was derived partly from property on the mainland and partly from mines. The gold mines yielded in all 80 talons a year, those in the island itself rather less, but a good sum all the same, so that the islanders, without raising taxes on their own produce, enjoyed from the mines and the mainland a revenue of 200 talons and in a particularly good year, as much as 300. Herodotus. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, episode 56, Thassos, Path to Conflict. We have now covered the events of the Delian League in the Aegean after its inception in 477 BC. This saw us follow the unfolding events of the campaigns that would take place, with the ancient sources reporting this period while trying to highlight the growth of Athenian power. In effect, we end up with a summary of events through Thucydides, with also Diodorus and Plutarch providing some extra detail. Because of this summary treatment, it becomes hard for us to get a clear idea of how these campaigns unfolded and if there were other campaigns that had not been reported, since they perhaps highlighted the same points. We were taken through the evolution as reported by Thucydides, showing how the Delian League began by fulfilling its outlined objectives, campaigning against the Persian-controlled areas. Though, we would then start to see Greeks becoming the focus of these campaigns, continuing through the years. Initially, pragmatic reasons for this direction were cited, but then these campaigns would focus on fulfilling the League's interests. This would see the League forcing members into its membership, since they had benefited from its existence. Then self-preservation would come to the forefront, with Naxos wanting to leave its membership. For Athens, this would be seen as a revolt, and action was needed to prevent this from taking place. After having been taken through this evolution of how the League would operate, we are then taken back to its primary function and its objective of eliminating Persian influence and threats in the region. This would see the largest battle between Greek and Persian forces develop since the end of hostilities on the Greek mainland. Chimon, general of the Delian League, would receive information that a large concentration of Persian forces were building up on the southern Anatolian coast. This would see the Greeks launch their fleet as the campaigning season began to intercept this force as it was believed they were preparing to move against Greece. If we are to believe Plutarch, the Delian League would fight two naval battles, as well as a land one, at the mouth of the Eurymedon River, being victorious in all three. Though the Greeks wouldn't know it at the time, this battle would halt further Persian designs in the region, 
for the near future. Reaching this point in events taking place throughout the Aegean, we then went back through the previous 10 years to look at the political developments taking place on the Greek mainland through the eyes of Athens and Sparta. This saw, in the wake of the victory of the Persian invasions, a number of options open to both polos as they moved forward. These options would be fought over within their respective city-states, different factions vying for their chosen policy, much like today with the different parties looking to have their policies supported. The direction these policies would take would see conflict between Athens and Sparta being avoided for the time being, though this was no foregone conclusion, with the hero of Salamis, Themistocles being ostracised and eventually exiled into the Persian Empire, while Sparta turned to repairing some of the supposed damage he had caused when he supported democratic factions within the city-states on the Peloponnese. With us now caught up on the differing elements unfolding during this roughly 10-year period, we are now ready to get back on track following the events after the victory at the Eurymedon River. We will find here that the political developments back in Greece will become more directly interconnected with events now that both Athens and Sparta had settled on their policies moving forward. Though, as we will see, the events and responses that would take place would help shape these chosen policies. In this episode, we will focus on operations directed at the island of Thassos, as well as the dealings of Athens into Thracian lands just across from the island. We will also see Sparta become intertwined in the Delian League's dealings on Thassos, along with their own crisis that would develop thanks to Mother Nature or perhaps Poseidon. We had last left the Delian League far across the Aegean on the southern Anatolian coastline. This was after the victory over the Persian forces that had been amassing and seemed to have been preparing to launch another offensive. Thucydides indicates that multiple engagements were fought during this encounter, while Plutarch clearly tells us Chimon would lead victories in two naval battles, as well as one on land on the very same day. This victory at the Eurymedon River would see the only sizable Persian force capable at striking Greek-controlled regions destroyed, this effectively eliminating the threat in the Aegean for the near future. Though we do get indications that there were still Persian garrisons in the Chalcidides. We had seen that the lack of Persian forces being encountered before this battle may have helped some Delian League members question their commitment to the League. Though the Battle of the Eurymedon had shown that the Persian threat had not disappeared, we must keep in mind that thanks to our benefit of hindsight, we are able to see that the Persians would cause little dramas for the Greeks after this battle. However, for the Greeks, there would have been no doubt many different takes on what this now meant for them. Some of them would have now seen that Persia would no longer prove to be a threat, seeing their support in the Delian League being questioned. Others would have seen this the largest battle against Persia fought since Xerxes' invasion as shoring up their commitment to the League. Athens would have no doubt presented the Eurymedon as a tale of caution. Although there had been years of relative quiet from Persian activities, they would still prove to provide a threat. This therefore seeing them make the argument that the Delian League needed to continue being funded so as to respond when required. Now, as we brought up last time, it isn't known for certain when the Battle of the Eurymedon took place, with it seeming to be fought somewhere between 469 and 465. This is based on two other dates that are a little more certain. The Siege of Naxos seems to have taken place between 471 and 469, while the Siege of Thassos, which we'll be talking about today, would take place in 465 BC. Then when we refer to the chronology of events that Thucydides provides in his summary of Delian League actions, the Battle of the Eurymedon slots in between these two events. Mind you, we are assuming Thucydides is recounting these events in the order they happened, rather than highlighting them in the point that he is making. So not perfect for arriving at a date, but is the best we have to work from. 
There are other passing remarks and antidotes by Diodorus, Plutarch and Thucydides that historians have pointed to to support the date they believe most likely, though I don't want to get too down in the weeds over this point. One point I do want to make here, though take it with a grain of salt, is after the victory of the Eurymedon, the Delian League doesn't seem to have stayed long in the region where they would have had the opportunity to recruit more cities to the League with the Persians now unable to respond to the League's actions. Perhaps the League had other matters that needed to be dealt with. Maybe a crisis was brewing elsewhere within the region of influence. This could indicate why the League did not hang around to consolidate after their victory. We know that the situation that would develop on Thassos would become an urgent matter for Athens and the Delian League. So this could be suggestive that the Battle of the Eurymedon took place closer in time to the crisis on Thassos rather than the earlier dates given. But again, this is just me spitballing based on the lack of activity after the victory at the Eurymedon. However, we do hear through Plutarch that Chimon would direct the League's fleet, or at least part of it, towards the Chalcidides, not all that far from Thassos, as supposedly there was still some Persian influence in the area. The reality is that we are devoid of much detail around this period, so there could be other factors that we are just unaware of. Anyway, let's get to what was taking place over on the island of Thassos. The island of Thassos is located in the northern Aegean in what is known as the Thracian Sea. It only lays some 10 kilometres from the Thracian coast and is not all that far from the earlier site of the Delian League's intervention at Eon. Thassos had originally been colonised by Phoenician settlers, with the name of the island reportedly coming from their leader of this expedition, according to the geographer Pausanias. They surely would have been attracted by the mines in the region and the trade connections that would be made, though by around 650 BC, the nearby island of Paros would also proceed to colonise the island, and influence from Thassos would begin to exert itself onto the Thracian coast. During the period of the Persian invasions, Thassos would find itself assisting the Persian effort. It seems they had been caught off guard in 492 when Mardonius launched his initial campaign, with Herodotus saying that the Thasians, in the face of the Persian force, did not so much as lift up their hands against it. Though it seems possible that the island had begun to make efforts in defending itself after Mardonius's failure in the region. Though Herodotus reports this may well have been a rumour created by one of their neighbours, so that Persia would weaken the island, where we hear Thassos was forced to hand over its navy and take down their walls. However, after the victory in 479, the island would quickly find itself looking to cement its loyalties within the Greek world, and would become an original member of the Delian League, present during its founding in 477 BC. The reason for this crisis developing on Thassos seems to be quite different to the rebellion that took place on Naxos. We hear through Thucydides that a dispute had arisen over trade markets on the Thracian coast, as well as silver and gold mines that Thassos had control over. So it seems this was a quarrel between Athens and Thassos on the surface of it. Though if you remember back to the early operations of the Delian League, we saw them attack Eon on the coast, which had been due to it being under Persian influence. In this attack, we saw the League clear this Persian control while also preventing the surrounding Thracian tribes filling this vacuum. This then left the League, or more accurately, the Athenians, with a foothold in the region. It is unclear what activities were taking place around Eon in the ten years leading up to 465, though being so close to Thassos and the areas of the Thracian coast they had control over, it isn't hard to imagine questions of influence over trade in the region causing problems. Also, the campaign against the Persian-controlled areas on the Chalcidides took place after the Eurymedon, as Plutarch suggests. This may have also inflamed tensions over trade routes and markets. After expelling the Persians and Thracian allies, 
Athens would, in Plutarch's words, make the Chalcidides their property. With the Chalcidides so close to Thassos and the interests, one can see how this would then lead to further tensions. We also hear around the same time Athens responded to Thassos, they had also sent 10,000 colonists, also including a number from allied cities, to the Strymon River to a place called Nine Ways, which would become later known as Amphipolis. This I think also points to Athens attempting to spread their influence into the area, and of course they would want to take advantage of the resources and markets that were present. Though it must be noted, this attempt at colonising the region ended in failure when encountering the surrounding tribes who viewed this as an act of hostility. In the accounts we have, Athens comes across as the aggressor, but again, due to the lack of detail during this period, it is hard to sift through what was taking place behind these events. Thucydides tells us that Athens would respond to the dispute regarding Thassos by sending its navy against the island. It is unclear if this action was considered part of the Delian League's campaigns, with Athens possibly presenting the response in the interest of the League, or if Athens was acting independently. Though by this stage, the League's navy would seem to be mostly under the control of Athens. Perhaps it would be a mixture of the two. There was much to gain by Athens establishing control, and through this desire, it would be an extension become the League's undertaking as it did make some sense for a base of operations off the Thracian coast, and near to the expanding Macedonian borders. By all indications, Thassos would have fielded a fairly decent navy, this making a lot of sense since it was an island state with control over mines and trade that would have generated quite some wealth. Though Thucydides' passing remark on the initial naval battle that would take place between Athens and Thassos gives us a somewhat different impression of their status as a naval power. He would say, The Athenians sailed to Thassos with their fleet, won a naval engagement, and landed on the island. Only a few words of the sentence being devoted to the battle on the sea that would take place. Though I guess we shouldn't expect too much, Thucydides' account of the Eurymedon only gave us a fraction more when it came to that battle. Anyway, it seems Thassos had sailed out to meet the Athenian fleet in an attempt to defend the island. Whether it was a short and sharp battle, or a long drawn out one, the only detail we have is that Athens was victorious. This would then leave the island open to being attacked by the Athenians, now that the first line of defence had been overcome. The Athenians were able to land on the island, where they would then settle into a siege, as the people of Thassos would fall back within their city walls that had been since reconstructed after the Persian Wars. This would now see the island between a rock and a hard place. They had one of the most powerful Greek city-states besieging them, and they were well within Delianly controlled territory. If they just stayed behind their walls taking no action, it would just be a matter of time before the city would fall. Though Thassos would take action, which would see them send for assistance from another powerful city on the Greek mainland, that of Sparta. What is interesting to note here is that a number of Delian League members would revolt over the years, though no serious organised coalition would form. Thassos was probably one of the most wealthiest members of the League, and it appears they had desires to exit the League. Though, the issues over trade and control of the mines in the region would perhaps see their move to break away take place sooner rather than later. We do not hear of any other League members looking to assist Thassos. Maybe the past campaigns against those who revolted had served as a message. Or perhaps, like we have said, for a number of the members, it wasn't quite clear how reduced the Persian threat in the Aegean was at this early stage after the victory at the Eurymedon. The various members were still looking to work out their own policy towards how developments were unfolding in the Aegean. The dust had not settled enough for a collection of members to see themselves in a similar position. 
This is why it seems they would send for assistance to Sparta, Apollos outside the league. Thucydides would comment, Meanwhile, the people of Thassos, who had been defeated in battle and were now besieged, appealed to Sparta and urged her to come to their help by invading Attica. The Spartans, without informing Athens of their intentions, promised to do so. Now we must point out what Thucydides reports here has been called into question in the previous decades of our modern times, with the main argument being that Thucydides is unreliable during this interwar period. But on the same hand, those who have made these similar arguments have been quite willing to use other aspects of Thucydides reports during this period on face value. I think on the surface of it, the sections people are willing to accept and deny of Thucydides' Pentecontinia, the roughly 50-year period between the wars, seems to come down to who they're seeing as being the aggressor or at fault of the Peloponnesian War breaking out. Though, whoever was at fault, if this can even be levelled at just one side, should it narrow our outlook on sections due to presenting one side or another in a negative light. However, for most modern historians these days, Thucydides' account has been taken on face value, as nothing else has presented itself to suggest this was fabricated. Have you been enjoying the series and thinking of helping support the show in some way? Casting Through Ancient Greece is over on Patreon, where we have been providing supporters with monthly bonus episodes, where we look at past topics in more detail and isolation. So far, we have revisited the Bronze Age of Greece, looking at art, trade connections, warfare, and a number of other topics. We then advanced into the Archaic Period, where we spent some time exploring the little-known Latitine War, the Olympic Games, emergence of the Hoplite, and other areas. After this, we then turned to doing a three-part series on the epic poet Homer, covering both of his books, the Iliad and the Odyssey. We are now looking at the early history of both Sparta and Athens, where the latest bonus episode is focused on the mythical origins of the city-state of Sparta. We focus on the myth of the return of the Heraclidae, the story connecting the Dorian Spartans to the divine hero Heracles. Following this, we will next turn to the origins of Athens through its mythic past. If you are interested in gaining access to these bonus episodes, please consider heading over to the Casting Through Ancient Greece Patreon page. Not only will you get monthly bonus episodes, but you will receive early access, ad-free episodes, plus monthly video series updates about what has been happening in the series and what is planned. Other options also include access to fully referenced transcripts of the series episodes, as well as a forum where members' questions are answered every month via video. Alternatively, you can visit the Casting Through Ancient Greece website where you can find the Patreon link, as well as other ways to help support the series grow, when clicking on Support the Series button. Thank you all for listening to the series, and I look forward to perhaps seeing you over on Patreon. So if this was the true development that took place, not that we have any decent evidence to point to that suggests it isn't, it seems like a very interesting development with the relations between Athens and Sparta. We had seen in the previous episode that factions within both Sparta and Athens were looking to control tensions between themselves and pursue their interests without provoking one another. Though as we saw, there were factions within both that had a more aggressive outlook. For Sparta to have agreed to an offensive against Athenian territory suggests something within their political system had changed. We don't get the level of detail around what was taking place within Sparta politically, as we do with Athens. Though seeing the about turns on policy take place, and what we know to be happening in other cities, it seems very likely that we are seeing the end result of factional change within their society, or at least the growing influence of another faction. It has been seen that the faction within Sparta, known as the War Party, named by modern historians, 
had managed to gain more influence with their policies during this period. Looking back at our previous episodes, there would have been no shortage of arguments they could have made to paint Athens as growing in power at Sparta's expense, while also acting in a hostile manner towards themselves and harming their influence on the Peloponnese. This party would have seen Athens' rapid growth in power and wealth throughout the Aegean problematic. If it continued in the manner it did, they would see that Athens would quickly surpass Sparta, leaving Athens in a position to become hegemon over most of Greece. In their eyes, it wouldn't be long before Athens would begin encroaching on Spartan interests closer to home. As well as this, there were more aggressive moves by Athens that could be pointed to that perhaps these interests were already being encroached upon. Themistocles, who had been a part of the Athenian faction with a more aggressive policy outlook towards Sparta, had been allegedly making moves through many regions on the Peloponnese by helping see various democratic factions in different polis gain support and influence within their own governments. So these would have been some of the actions and concerns that the war party would have been able to point to, though how they would come to gain more influence and have an agreement to Thassos' request we are unsure. It is interesting that the agreement, however, had remained secret and wouldn't come to light for some years. This could perhaps show that only a small inner circle was aware and had voted. The wider Spartan citizenship may have been unaware and therefore attitudes toward this agreement unknown. This attack that Sparta had supposedly agreed to would be directed at the region of Attica, with it not seeming that they would have looked to attack Athens directly. This was a common tactic in hoplite warfare, to march into the enemy's lands and ravage their crops. This would see the defender marching out to meet the aggressors on relatively flat land from the city walls and defences. Sparta's aim here was along these same lines, and as we will see, it is the strategy that Sparta would initially follow once the Peloponnesian War would break out. Though, in this case, the idea was to threaten Athenian territory enough so that it would break the siege taking place on Thassos, since a great part of Athens' fighting strength would have been serving within the League's fleet. They would need to abandon operations there to respond to the crisis developing in their own lands. But one can't help but think, what next? The incursion would have very well relieved the siege on Naxos, achieving its goal. But what would the next play be? And what was the bigger picture, strategy-wise, going to be? Surely this action would have created a point of no return, being the first overtly hostile action taken between these mutually suspicious city-states. But once again, thanks to the thin detail around Sparta, we are left to guess. Though another point that would leave us to deal with the what-ifs around this proposed attack is the fact that it would not develop in the first place. Around a year into the siege on Thassos, a great earthquake would shake Sparta and a number of other city-states on the Peloponnese. By all accounts from the ancient sources that report on the earthquake, it appears it was quite devastating. It would destroy a number of cities, with estimates that the death toll in Sparta could have been well up to 20,000. However, most modern historians think this to be somewhat of an exaggeration. This is based off that most ancient sources present Sparta as a city with a spread out population and its buildings primarily single story dwellings. In an earthquake, the majority of casualties would be inflicted due to collapsing buildings and other structures. Though we do have a couple of ancient accounts that stress the magnitude of the event. Plutarch writes, There happened in the country of Lacedaemon the greatest earthquake that was known in the memory of man. The earth opened up into chasms and the mountain was so shaken that some of the rocky points of it fell down. And except for five houses, all the town of Sparta was shattered to pieces. Plutarch then continues with an anecdote of the fate of some Spartan youths. They say that a little before any motion was perceived, 
As a young man and the boys just grown up were exercising themselves together in the middle of the portico, a hare, of a sudden, started out just by them, which the young men, although all naked and dubbed with oil, ran after it for sport. No sooner were they gone from the place than the gymnasium fell down upon the boys who had stayed behind and killed them all. While we also have Diodorus providing some detail on the events. During this year, a great and incredible catastrophe befell the Lacedaemonians. For a great earthquake occurred in Sparta, and as a result, the houses collapsed from their foundations, and more than 20,000 Lacedaemonians perished. Since the tumbling down of the city, and the falling in of the houses continued uninterruptedly over a long period, many persons were caught and crushed in the collapse of the walls, and no little household property was ruined by the quake. This earthquake would be but the beginning of the worries for Sparta, with the fallout creating other events that would need to be dealt with. This would also see the relations between Sparta and Athens intertwined, and the seed of distrust further germinate. Though we will turn to these events next episode, I would like to continue with the events around Thassos and the developments in Athens regarding it. For now, this sudden shaking of the Peloponnese would bring any perceived Spartan plans of invading Attica to an end, while they were now busy with their own crisis. So, unfortunately for Thassos, they would have no intervention from any outside power, thanks to the earthshaker Poseidon's rage. This would see the siege on the island continue on for the next two years, where the people would endure severe hardships. By all appearances, they had been determined in their resistance, otherwise the siege would have not gone on as long as it did. We also hear that harsh punishments awaited those who seek to make peace with Athens. There is also a tale about the women of Thassos cutting their hair to help with the shortages of rope, this then assisting in constructing siege weapons. Though the island would finally reach their breaking point in 463, the third year into the siege, they were forced to surrender to Athens, with the Athenians being able to list the terms they wished. All the contested trade markets and mines were handed over for Athenian control to pay for the indemnity, while they would then be forced back into the Delian League, where an ongoing tribute would be imposed on them. In addition to this, Thassos would surrender its entire navy for use within the League. It is quite possible that they would have been the second largest contributor of ships behind Athens. They then would be forced into breaking down their defensive walls once again. This would have seen the influence and wealth of Thassos crippled, with all of the control they held over the Thracian coast gone. They were now reduced to the environs of their own island, though Athens would be benefiting from what they would be able to produce due to the forced tribute they had imposed. Control of Thassos for Athens, and by extension the Dillian League, made much strategic sense. The island, in the decades previously, had used their wealth to strengthen their navy and their hold on the trade in the region through the use of sea power. This not only meant building a large fleet, but an impressive base had been constructed to support such a large navy. Herodotus would tell us that they had built a large military harbour, which included a number of ship sheds where the triremes could be repaired. They'd also taken measures to protect the harbour from man and mother nature, with it boasting impressive defensive works, while breakwaters and moles were also a feature. This impressive harbour would make for an excellent base for the Dillian League, who had not yet a single base of operations in the northern Aegean. Though what made Thassos's infrastructure even more attractive was the strategic importance of the region it was located in. We have seen that there was important trade routes and markets throughout the Thracian coast, while there are also a number of silver and gold mines in the region. 
Thassos would see that the League could direct operations from a base that was now in reach of all these areas of interest. Previously, if the League operated with a large fleet, it would have needed to find multiple locations for the ships to put in at land. The other thing to note here is that Thassos would also provide Athens with close naval support in its attempt to colonise these coastal regions of Thrace. We have seen already that they had a few setbacks due to the local tribes when penetrating too far inland. With Athenian influence in Thassos, they would be able to eventually better support the colonists in the area. Also in this mix of territorial influences was that of the expanding kingdom of Macedon. They were gaining more influence over the areas that had also generated wealth and could be of interest to Athens. However, with Athens' newly acquired influence in the northern Aegean and Thracian coast, it appears they would not make moves against any Macedonian-controlled areas. This would become a point of debate back in Athens, with it seeming for the first time since Themistocles' exile, an opposing faction was gaining some more influence, and would use this inaction against Macedon as an attack on one of the most popular men in Athens, Cimon. As we've already seen over the last few episodes, Cimon, since coming on the scene after the Persian defeat in 479, would prove himself to be an effective and popular general commanding the Dillian League. He comes across as an energetic young man with military skill, with his characteristics portraying him as the man every young man wanted to be and every young woman wanted to marry. His successes out on campaign would translate into more renown each year when returning, seeing Athens' wealth steadily increasing as a result. Not only would it be the wealth he generated that would see his popularity increase, but it would also be the feats he would accomplish, putting him up there with the great names of Athens' past. He would be lifted to the heights of Hero of Athens after having recovered and returned the bones of Theseus, the legendary founder of Athens, after his campaign on the island of Skyros. While he would also show his ability as a great military leader at the Battle of the Eurymedon, where he would lead multiple battles on the same day, according to Plutarch, two naval and one land. Though he and the others leading the faction he was a part of would still face opposition from the old hero of Athens, Themistocles. It appears Cimon would remain the main driving force behind the policy directed at operations in the Aegean once Aristides and Xanthippus had died. Then eventually, Themistocles would be ostracised and find himself in exile in Persia. This would then see Cimon with very little real opposition in Athenian politics. Well, from what we hear anyway. Though as the years pass, there would have no doubt been those in Athens that wanted to see the back of Cimon, rather through genuine disagreement over policy or their own desire for status. The victory over the island of Thassos would be the first time we hear of an active attempt in trying to remove him from power, perhaps up to ten years after the exile of Themistocles. One figure that we hear of that would start to develop as an opponent to Cimon was that of Pericles, the son of Xanthippus. Though we will introduce ourselves to him in a future episode, when his influence in political affairs would become more decisive. Cimon's enemies would level the charge of corruption against him, a common charge against those in office as we have seen. This was to do with the handling of the aftermath of the Thassos campaign. To be sure, the campaign was a success and the wealth generated from it would have been immense. Though what it had also done was open up more opportunities into Thracian and Macedonian-controlled regions. Here, there were yet more resources that could be controlled for Athens' benefit. But from what we hear, Cimon would not continue operations into these regions, especially those of the Macedonians. This is where the charge of corruption would come from. Cimon's enemies would accuse him of accepting bribes from King Alexander of Macedon, this still being Alexander I 
These bribes were supposedly given to prevent Cimon moving against any Macedonian-held territory. It is interesting to note here that it appears the opposing faction back in Athens, that Pericles seems to be a part of, was hostile towards Macedon. It is hard to see how this developed, given that the last time we hear of relations between Athens and Macedon were on friendly terms. With the many accounts during the Persian invasions, where Alexander was attempting to assist Athens. Though we need to remember, the details of what were taking place during this period are very light. It had also been some 15 years since the end of the Persian invasions, where a lot seems to have changed politically. In addition to this, the interests of both Athens and Macedon were bordered with one another. In situations such as these, this is where we are most likely to see a breakdown of relations. Though, Cimon perhaps was not interested in flaring up tensions in this part of the world just yet. It may be along the same lines of thought of why he wanted to avoid inflaming tensions with Sparta. But again, there is always the possibility that his opponents may have had a case. Back in Athens, there would have been enough support behind these charges of corruption to at least have Cimon recalled and stand trial. Plutarch tells us that Pericles would be his most passionate opponent during the trial. Though in the face of this, Cimon would stand to defend himself, with Plutarch recording what he is supposed to have said. In his defence, he told the judges that he had always shown himself in his public life the friend, not, like other men, of rich Ionians and Thessalians, to be courted and to receive presents, but of the Lacedaemonians, for he admired, so he wished to imitate, the plainness of their habits, their temperance, and simplicity of living, which he preferred to any sort of riches, but that he had always had been, and still was, proud to enrich his country with the spoils of her enemies. Whatever the other arguments that were put forward during this trial, they would be to no avail. Carmen would find himself acquitted. He still held a great deal of influence in Athens. Though perhaps this episode should have served as a warning to him. We had seen he would head out on campaign to spend every season, leaving him absent from the political dealings within the city. This had not been a problem in the past with his successors retaining his popularity. Now though, it appears a new generation of political figures were emerging that would challenge his popularity and that would take advantage of his absence from Athens. As we continue next episode, we will see how this growing opposition to Cimon would play out, why we will also meet two of his opponents, Pericles and Ephialdes. Though this will be done through the events taking place on the Peloponnese. As we briefly covered this episode, a major event had taken place affecting many cities on the Peloponnese where we hear great damage had been inflicted on Sparta. We will head back to focus in on what would take place in the aftermath of this disaster that had occurred while the siege of Thassos was drawing to its conclusion. This earthquake would see other consequences follow. Not only had it put a stop to any aggressive moves Sparta may have been planning towards Athens, but now they were finding themselves in a position where they were needed to defend their position of influence on the Peloponnese once again. The effect the earthquake had on Sparta would see their slave population, the Helots, amongst others, look to attempt to gain their freedom. They had perceived that Sparta was now in a weakened state, and their chance of success was as good as it had ever been. But it wasn't only the subject populations in Sparta that saw this weakness. Other regions also saw an opportunity to move, with this perhaps being somewhat of a continuation of manoeuvrings from when Themistocles had stirred troubles with Sparta's neighbours. Though as we will see, Sparta still had its allies, and would call upon their assistance, Athens being one of these polis. They had not yet learnt of the secret agreement made with Thassos, 
and were calling upon the common ties they had within the Hellenic League. Though during this counter-offensive by Sparta against its enemies would occur an episode that would see a turning point in Athenian-Spartan relations. Not only would it damage their relations, but it would see Chiron's opponents back in Athens now growing in influence with another attempt to remove him and his policies from Athenian politics. Thank you everyone for your continued support and a big shout out to all those who have found some value in the series and have been supporting it on Patreon and other various ways. Your contribution has truly helped me grow the series. I would like to give a shout out to a new supporter over on Patreon. A big thank you to Cash G for making the decision to sign up and support the series. I greatly appreciate it and hope you enjoy all the extra episodes. If you have also found some value in the show and wish to support the series, you can head to www.castingthroughancientgreece.com and click on the support the series button, where you can discover many ways to extend your support to helping the series grow. Be sure to stay connected and updated on what's happening in the series and join me over on Facebook or Instagram at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. And be sure to subscribe to the series over the Casting Through Ancient Greece website. I hope you can join me next time where we continue the narrative in the series with episode 57, Troubles on the Peloponnese. <laughs>